Writing a newsletter does give you another cheat code. So what's going on there? You can choose a narrow enough topic that you will be the person who has worked the hardest on explaining this one thing. You were up at, what, 5 a.m. every single day to write? If there's a big story, you are not going to be the first person to cover that story. But there's always demand for the last important piece on it. Should companies be way weirder? Um, in general, yes. If I'm reading about a company or an industry and I start mentally designing an elaborate German board game about it, <laughs> then I know I'm totally embedded in a topic. I could write for a thousand years and I would never have that happen to me. My first question for you is how do you actually track and begin to build ideas? Like, is there a place where you are storing ideas or how does that process actually work? Sure. So um, I've gone through a lot of different systems over time, but usually the thing I default to is some form of there is a big file somewhere that has a long list of ideas. Um, some of those ideas are literally one sentence, like look into company XYZ. Sometimes it's a question I want to answer. Sometimes it starts as that and slowly evolves into actual paragraphs and thoughts, points I want to make, things I want to link to, things I should read later, things I have read and want to talk about. And um, some of those, they will just evolve into a post on their own. And so the writing process is go to the notes file, copy, paste, done. Um, in other cases, it's something where the the notes I have are just a starting point for a lot more research and right. then I'm kind of accumulating research. And so sometimes the research process can be that I start a post and I sort of have a topic in mind and just start accumulating little things I want to say and points I want to make and notes and quotes from things I've read. And then eventually you can kind of hammer that into a coherent final product. Um, that gets annoying sometimes because sometimes my viewpoint changes right. halfway through, but that's also fun. Right. That's sort of a good thing. Now, when I read your links email on Saturday, you link to articles, books. Should I be looking at that as Bird is just interested in this, or should I be looking at that as a leading indicator of what you're going to be writing? It is sometimes a leading indicator. So sometimes, especially on the book side, because there are there are some posts where I want to write it, but I realize I need a lot more background information. And so I'll read a book. Like if I'm writing about a company, I'll often read, if there's a book about that company, I'll often read it. Or if there's an industry I need to understand better, I'll read some things in that industry. So those can be a leading in indicator. But the long reads that are just, here's a link to a long form article, that's just I like reading long form articles. Mm -hmm. It's just one of life's great pleasures is yeah, to settle down like on the weekend with your coffee and just linger over something. And um, since I, I work from home, I guess I, I get that like pseudo weekend time fairly often. And um, yeah, accumulate some some interesting articles, hopefully. You, you always have these fun ways of interpreting things. And so when I read that, is that something that comes to mind immediately? Or do you sort of read a piece and instantly write the recommendation? Because I see the recommendation as almost like, this is my unique take on what's happened. I I try to make the newsletter value added. If you want a list of interesting links, you can go to Hacker News or you go to the right subreddit, you find that. Um, I do want to build in some commentary. And sometimes I think there's sometimes there's a meta point to make about why did this get written versus a point about the content itself. Hmm. So it's an important way to look at media is to always ask. Why did this get written? And um, if it is a deeply reported story, who was talking to the writer? Why were they talking? Like this is, um, I wrote a piece about this a while ago about business books and hmm. that there are better business books about scandals than about successes for two reasons. One is that a scandal has an actual plot 
And it's basically a Greek tragedy. So yep. you have hubris, and then you know you have this downfall, and there's this aftermath, and this person gets punished for thinking they could do more than they could actually do, or for their their various mistakes, etc. So it is more of a narrative, whereas uh, a success story is like this company used to be young and scrappy, and now they're a very large corporation with lots of vice presidents of whatever, and their shareholders are happy. Um, not, you know, that's that's a good story for the world, not a super interesting story to read relative to the alternative. So that's one piece. But the other thing is, when a company fails, nobody at that company is busy making money. They're all um, unemployed. So they all have a lot of free time and they all want to say that whatever happened, it wasn't their fault. <laughs> so like if you read Enron books, you can basically read books like Smartest Guys in the Room as every ex-Enron employee trying to explain why it was some other part of Enron's fault that Enron collapsed. And some of them will probably be right. Like I don't think every single person at every fraudulent company was doing all fraud all the time. But um, you do have to you you have to consider who's talking to whom and who would have an incentive to talk and who wouldn't. It, you know, if there's like a, a boardroom coup, well, who on the board is talking to the media? What are they saying? When and sometimes when there's a scene in a business book or a story, a news story, and you know there were just not that many people in the room, then you can actually start to narrow down your list of mm. who wants like whose narrative is this based on who would be talking about this. And sometimes it's like, if the story is really embarrassing, if there are two people who were involved in a conversation and one of them comes off looking really badly at the end of that conversation, yeah, it's the other person talking to the media, which again, doesn't mean they're lying, but it does mean that you are getting the the version of the story that is most flattering to them. Yeah. I once heard somebody say something to the effect of when you first start reading an article about something that you don't know much about, you retain 30 to 40% of whatever's being said. The numbers here don't matter. It's the meta point that does matter. And then you begin to understand uh, an industry or a space better and you understand 100%. What I thought was really interesting is that if you're an expert on industry, you understand 150%. And the meaning there is that every single sentence, every single paragraph, you can then layer on to a tapestry of other knowledge that you've built. And then you can sort of see through things. You can see what's going on at a much more deep and fundamental level. Sure. I think I think that's that's a very accurate assessment. I think the other way to get to over 100% understanding is that if you understand better than the person who wrote the article why mm -hmm. they were in a position to write it, like why did someone leak to them and not somebody else? Why are they leaking now and not at some other time? Then yeah, you can get to slightly better understanding than them. And of course, good good journalists know that everyone who's talking to them has a reason to talk to them. So they they can make some adjustments for that. But depending on your context, you can sometimes make the adjustment a little better. You mentioned something earlier about effort and how much is the correlation for you between how hard you work on a piece and how much of a banger it becomes? I wish it were higher. Um, it is, and this is something I've noticed with a lot of newsletter writers, like it's a perennial complaint that our favorite pieces, the ones we work really hard on, just don't do that well. It's not always true. Like there seems to be a correlation slight between the length of a piece and how well it does. So longer, better? Yes. Interesting. Wait, that doesn't match up with how people think about how society's changing right now. So what's going on there? The more you write about something, the more likely it is that you have actually done the definitive take and that when people want to explain the topic to someone else thoroughly, that's what they cite. I think there is this sort of game that people play that you can play to an extent on, say, when you're trying to get a, get rankings on Reddit or Hacker News or even get trending on Twitter, where if there's a big story, 
you are not going to be the first person to cover that story. Mm-hmm. It's going to be whoever broke the story, or if the story is like company, a company announces something, a bunch of people will just immediately retweet that or they'll tweet it with commentary. It's very hard to be first, and it's very competitive to be first. It's kind of random at this point over whether it's someone at Insider or someone at Bloomberg or someone at The Verge. Someone will get it really, really early. Right. But when something big happens, there's always demand for the last important piece on it. Like, what did this actually mean? And that is a lot harder to define because it's it's not this one-dimensional competition of, can you tweet it first? And you see this with, um, there's a great profile of Joe Weisenthal, who was at Business Insider, now at Bloomberg, where it's talking about how on Jobs Day, I think he has a tweet he has two tweets lined up in TweetDeck, one for if jobs are better than expected and one for if jobs are worse than expected. So all he has to do is alt-tab and hit enter. Yeah, that's tough to compete on because it's one dimension. But if you have two dimensions of um, timing and quality, then you actually have a reasonable shot. So that's something that I, I aim to do. And you know, this, the success rate is probably higher than it would be for just being first to tweet it, but is not not even going to approach 50%. Mm, yep. So that when you have a post like the economics of gas stations, which are like, how did that do so well? Do you do retrospectives on that? Or do you think like, what's going on there? Or is it just like, huh, that's surprising you move on? Um, honestly, a lot of it is the, the huh reaction, because I think it's very hard to predict what it is that people don't know, but will find interesting. And, you know, filling, trying to fill those gaps in people's knowledge is just it's hard. And it's also filling gaps in my own knowledge. And since if I don't know something, so the gas stations one is another one where I'd been thinking about it and just thinking about, well, how do they actually make money? Yeah. Like, it seems like how do they make businesses. money? Well, um, they make a lot of money from lotto tickets, cigarettes, snacks, stuff like that. Like the actual business of selling gas, um, is just not where, where they make money. They make money really on the foot traffic. And there are a lot of companies like this where they, their whole model is like build this bundle. And if you can do one thing well enough that people actually buy it and you can break even on that thing, then you add one more thing and suddenly you have a really profitable business. Is this a little bit like how you think about diff jobs? I mean, I see something similar. It's like a gas station, come for the gas, stay for the food and the lottery tickets. Diff jobs is come for the ideas, get a better job. Yeah, that is definitely how I think about it. So when I started the newsletter, it was just... I'm writing for fun and I'm going to email people because not everyone uses RSS. Um, and then it became, well, um, sort of writing the newsletter in order to um, stay in the loop and find my next job. And um, I started getting worried about COVID in early 2020 and realized, well, I'm probably not going on very many job interviews this year. Um, we probably just won't have a lot of human contact. So I decided to make it a paid newsletter instead just to kind of get through. And then it turned out that spring of 2020 was just a phenomenal time to be selling content online. Totally, yeah. uh, I think a lot of it was just white-collar workers who previously had a commute. So their their time at home ends when the commute starts, and then their time at home begins again when the commute ends. So if they start working when they would start commuting instead of when they would get to the office, then they have this extra time. And they're probably going to fill it with something that is like work-adjacent, but not necessarily more work. And newsletters that talk about the end, talk about the industry they're in really fit that niche well. That's the initial evolution. And then I just started to notice after a while, there are lots of really interesting people reading this newsletter. I was getting lots of really incisive comments from people and um, noticed that some of these comments were from startup founders who were saying, you know, you wrote this about the industry and you should also know this other thing or, you know, that thesis makes some sense, but we have this totally variant view and here's what it is. And other comments were from people who um, were not not starting their own company, but you could tell were just 
really smart, thoughtful people who were very intellectually curious. And so I did start connecting them. Um, it was a like a year and a half ago that I started doing that. And that's been going well and is growing faster than the subscription part of the newsletter. And um, it has it has a different network effect. So if you if the number of subscribers in the newsletter roughly doubles, then probably the value of that writing roughly doubles. Like mm-hmm. I'm writing for twice as big an audience, and if they like it, then yeah, that's doubled. But if the value of a network, if the size of a network doubles, then the number of connections in that network more than doubles. Um, it doesn't actually square, but um, it does more than double. And so you do have more opportunities to connect people as that network gets bigger. How do you think about quality of people there? Because I think one of the big things with the diff is you have a smart median reader. So you want to grow your audience, but you actually have almost diminishing returns, right? Because if you don't have great readers in the sense that these aren't the kinds of people who would want to work for the companies that would pay the diff to recruit them, then actually more people would take more of your time, be more noise and stuff like that. Yeah, so I think that that kind of thing is very much an emergent property of other stuff that I do. Like part of part of what keeps me motivated is it's a newsletter that I would want to read, and I want it to be the newsletter that um, if I were a reader rather than the writer, it would be the first thing that I read when I when I was checking my email. So um, it, it's like it's going to end up attracting people who who kind of share that that curiosity and want to go deep on weird business and tech topics. So um, in that sense, I don't really have to think that much directly about, okay, how do we, how do we make sure that we're getting the best readers and not the worst readers? It's, you know, there, there are going to be limits to that. Like um, if someone is smarter and works harder and writes a newsletter that is more focused on a particular domain, then they're going to have smarter people within that domain. Mm-hmm. But for, for getting like a smart general audience or audience of specialists with general interests, um, I think this approach really works. You can always worry about things having finite quantities when they don't actually have a finite quantity. Mm. So there's just not really, probably not going to run out of smart potential readers, you know, readers who I would like to hear back from when I write something that they have thoughts on. It's just, I don't think it's actually going to happen. One of the things I want to dive into is your work ethic before COVID. Because I think that this is one of the things I admire about your story is you were working a full-time job and you were up at, what, 5 a.m. every single day to write? And so tell me about that. I kind of go back and forth on what to say about schedule because my schedule drifts a lot. Yeah. And um, I mean, one of the things is just like, when it's the new year, people tend to take some time off and then reset. So right now I'm getting up at five in the morning, every morning. But um, usually my wake up time drifts like half an hour later every season. And then I reset again. But, um, yeah, there, there have definitely been times when I was working full time and writing on the side when, yeah, I'd have to either get up super early or stay up pretty late. Or, um, the other thing I found actually kind of worked nicely was, um, take notes on what I want to write on a physical piece of paper. And then at lunch, go somewhere for lunch, set a half hour timer and let myself write and eat and just do not use the internet. And I found that I could actually write a decent chunk of something worth writing and then going back and editing it and adding the links where I just didn't have the links because I didn't have internet. Um, that could work. But now I use a, a more sane strategy because writing is writing, if inclusive of research, is the main thing that I spend time on. So yeah, right now it's like get up at five ish and 
check email, catch up on email, um, read news. And it's, I, so I write most of the newsletter during the day and then send it the next morning. And there are two reasons for that. One is way easier to edit something if you have slept. Um, the other reason is occasionally something will change about the world and you'll want to make sure that you don't say the wrong thing or that you include some new note on an emerging story. So one example of that is, um, there was one time a couple years ago where I was talking about the economics of COVID and said something like, this will matter a whole lot less if there's ever a vaccine. And then the next morning, first headline was vaccine test successful. And so, yeah, I had to quickly go in and change that. How do you think about, you were talking to me about how early on your retention wasn't, wasn't that good. And so you were, you felt like you were reading all these things, but you didn't feel like you were actually retaining a lot of it. And that was a lot of your motivation to start writing. Yeah. Like if you read a lot of books, you can have this depressing feeling of you look at a bookshelf, point to a book you've read at random. How many things can you actually say from that book? Like at what length can you talk about the contents of that book and what were the real takeaways? And, and, you know, sometimes you'll point to a book and it happens to be a life changing book. And so you can talk about it for a very long time. And then in other cases, it's like, I remember three specific things that yeah. happened in that book that I didn't already know. One of the things I found was just if I write about things as I'm reading them, it's a lot easier to remember what was really salient. And the other thing is, it can just drive me crazy to remember some fact that I know I read somewhere and be unable to track it down. Mm -hmm. It can be really gratifying to finally find one of these things. And um, so that's, you know, as, as search engines get better, a little more of that has happened. There are other things where I, like, I know I've read it. So I know I read somewhere that in the 1930s, there were stocks that traded with a negative price because they were, when the IPO happened, they didn't sell everything up front. Instead of you buy the stock for $50, it's you buy it for $10 down and then $10 a year for the next four years. Mm -hmm. So if investors thought that this company would net destroy capital and if cash was very scarce, you'd actually have to pay someone to take the stock off your hands. Um, so I read that somewhere in high school. I've never been able to track it down. And like every six months, I will Google and try to figure out something, like some way to find this factoid and see if it was true. Um, and that's happened with a couple other things. But yeah, writing, writing it down helps with the retention. It also helps to make connections. And so it's, uh, it's kind of my, my version of spaced repetition is yeah. to think about what I'm reading in the context of something else I've read. So are there patterns that hold true? Are there patterns that break? The more parallels you can draw and the more contrast you can find, then the, the more, the more you get out of the things you read. So yeah, it does improve retention, improves comprehension. Yeah. I mean, I always think of you as sort of this implicit argument for the benefits of memorization. I think that there's a whole idea out there that memorization isn't really that important. Everything's a Google search away. You can always look something up. But actually, when you have things that are really easy to grasp, you're intellectual mobility is so much higher. And so you can connect things so much faster. And sure, in theory, you could go find what you need. But when something's just right there versus I'm gonna spend three days to find this. I mean, the compounding delta in productivity is huge. Yeah, there's a there's a good blog post about this from someone who had the pearl left one. Yes, yeah, I'm pretty sure the employees came from the IDF um, information warfare type unit. the The piece talks about how they were used to working in secure environments where they did not have access to Stack Overflow, so they memorized everything. And that it turned out to make them a lot more fluent in those concepts. So I do buy that. I don't actually tr 
I don't memorize things that systematically. So um, to the extent that I do memorize, it's probably just volume of information ingested rather than doing an unusually good job. So you have ingested more units of information. You think you don't retain a higher percentage of those units? I think I don't I don't think I have like a natural ability to retain that much more information. Um, I think and and some of it is like reading a lot in the same domains and doing that repeatedly and trying to find analogies between domains. Like all of those things improve retention without requiring some kind of special skill or some kind of special technique. Yeah. Tell me about the story of one of your first viral pieces, uh, the one about 30-year mortgages. Now that I'm saying it, I'm reminded of a story. Very first rite of passage session ever, um, I mentioned this piece. And I think that there were like 36 people on the Zoom, and your wife was one of them, and said, no way, Bird Hobart is my husband. And it was just one of those, how is the world so small moments. The world is a very small place. Sometimes. It really is. I actually think that it's good to, and this is something I've noticed, uh, I I think it's just good to basically assume, especially in, in, in matters of work, that you're basically in a high school cafeteria, and everybody will hear about everything, um, because the world rewards people who are in niches so much, and at the end of the day, the people who are talented in any sort of given niche is basically small enough to be in a group chat or slightly bigger than that. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And that if you're if you're reading in a given topic, you are, um, and you're writing in that topic, that after a while, you are very likely to either know a lot of the people or be mutual friends, like have right. mutual friends with a lot of these people. And then thinking about how to A, traverse that network, and B, how to make sure that you're not actually missing some other talent cluster that you haven't heard about is uh, it's an interesting and difficult problem. Hmm. Sitting here as I listen to you, see David Foster Wallace right here. How much do you think about cultivating your voice? Because like when I think of DFW, I'm like, oh my goodness, singular voice. Is that something that you think a lot about in terms of the style, or are you just so focused on substance? Um, I only think about that if someone else is editing me and they take out a sentence that I like. But half the time I think, okay, this is probably a self-indulgent thing to say, so fine, let's cut it. And then half the time I think, no, this is just how I want it to sound. But it, I, I haven't tried to consciously cultivate a voice. Um, I just have have written a lot, and I think if you write, you do start to develop some some tricks and some little things that make it make it a little bit better than it could other than it otherwise would be. And if everyone has a different collection of tricks, and um, and the tricks are not obvious, like you can't, it's hard for me to read a great writer and look at a well crafted sentence and just dissect it and say, okay. I bet this sentence started out sounding clunky, and you know maybe this got this part got split up, and this part got moved away, and maybe this whole paragraph was restructured so this last line could be really punchy. Um, if you don't see where it started, it's hard to see how it got to where it is. Um, but you can tell like it's good, but you can also tell it's distinctive to that writer. Um, and I I think everyone's going to vary in how much of a voice they actually have, and it's it's just hard to. Hard to force yourself to develop. I think if you try to develop a voice that's really distinctive, it will be very try-hard and embarrassing at first, mm. and it may or may not become good. But I don't know that. Like if, but I haven't read very much. I haven't read any David Foster Wallace novels. I've read some of his essays, but um, I don't know. Like if you go back to the beginning, does it feel like he's really, really trying to be? what he became, or does it feel like he was just being himself, and if you read something from when he was 20, he sounds like a 20-year-old who is good at this, but 
is not not what he would become. I do know this. He was obsessed with the specificity of his writing. So if you he won't just mention a tennis racket, he'll mention a tennis racket from 1974 where the strings had this quality about them. This was the brand, this was the make, this was the year, this was the color. And at the University of Texas library in town, they have all these notes. And I've actually only looked at the digital archives, but you can see him writing on eBay listings and looking at the, the descriptions and then pulling the description of the eBay listings into his actual writing. Mm. And so there's a lot of work that I know went into that that is certainly some kind of voice. And I think that Venkatesh Rao has my favorite line about David Foster Wallace. Most writers, they look at what's happening and they have like an iPhone picture. David Foster Wallace is like a 13K resolution. You can zoom in all over the place, three-dimensional. And that is something that I'm sure he has cultivated. And this is why I can't read David Foster Wallace for a long time. It like hurts my brain because he's he's like interpreting too much. It's also why I love him. Yeah, it's it can be fun to read very challenging people and especially authors who are willing to be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's, it's a useful exercise to read that. It's also interesting to think about whether the writing process is actually a process of just trying to get everything possible out onto the page, or if there's actually some um, conscious cultivation of which details do we highlight and which do we omit. So, you know, if he's if he's living in this world where tennis is the salient thing, then you obsess over tennis and you don't necessarily notice if a particular person is tall or short or wears glasses or not. Like it's all just kind of background. So I think that's that's one way is that it can be done deliberately. And then the other way is it can just be this, this more instinctive thing where he is just deeply aligned with how his character thinks about the world and his character happens to think that way. And so it just doesn't occur to him not to make those fine distinctions. You ever seen his interview with Charlie Rose? I haven't. Okay. So Darren Frost Wells is sitting there and he's, it goes something to the effect of this. So he's sitting there and he's sweating and Charlie Rose sort of realizes that something's going on and and the back and forth is something like, hey, calm down, like it's going to be good. And David Frost Wallace just goes, do you realize how many people are going to see this? There's going to be millions of people who are watching me right now. Like if I go like this on my face, like all these people are going to see this. And so my read on David Foster Wallace is he was so self-conscious and then also had this way of like understanding how many people were seeing him and sort of judging him and looking at him. And he was running that loop in his head so intensely that he's like, what am I doing? How is this going to be interpreted by this person, all these other people, that that just sort of drove him crazy. And something about that cognitive awareness in him was far beyond most people. I think that's uh, that sounds like a reasonable assessment. And I think there's, it's, you know, the world abounds in trade-offs. And one of those trade-offs is if you are extremely aware of emotional states and very aware of your own emotional state and very aware of other people's emotional states, you can write some really interesting fiction. (laughs) But you're also still, you still have that problem. And And you might go insane. Yeah. And if if the result of writing that fiction is suddenly a whole lot more people are aware of you and they're thinking about you and talking about you and you know it, then yeah, it it can end up... in you know, self-limiting to various degrees of drasticness. Yeah. One of my favorite ideas from you ever is smart people read. And what I've added to this is smart people read, 
your, your point, and smart and successful people read the most. And this is this is in contrast to video, which has become so common. And we can talk about the benefits of video later, but why did you write that piece? I feel like there can be amazing documentaries out there. There can be amazing video tutorials, but in general, it is just very hard to match writing the written word for information density. And it's very hard to match it for um, these, these affordances like being able to backtrack a paragraph, backtrack a page, um, being able to control F if you have a digital document, being able to highlight and things like all of this is so much easier to do with the written word. Um, there's a different kind of zoning out with um, with reading rather than with video, where if you zone out with reading, you are fully immersed. Um, you will sometimes lose track of things. And mm. I think this happens to anyone who just reads for extended periods is you realize, I flipped through three pages. I don't have any retention of this. I just went off on some tangent based on something the writer was saying, but my eyes were still moving, so I didn't notice. Right. Um, All but the time. <laughs> yeah, it's a, I'm glad I'm not the only one. Yeah, it's a, it's a hazard of, uh, of reading. But when I read about very successful people, um, there's a lot, a lot of their time is spent reading and, um, a lot of their communication ends up in the written words. So, you know, Amazon has that famous setup of the six page memo where it's six pages with an asterisk because you can have many, many more pages of, um, appendices and of data tables and things like that, supporting charts, whatever. But, um, that a lot of their management, a lot of their ideas are built around, we're going to write a concise, well-edited memo that has just been brutally beaten into perfect shape such that it is extremely clear and direct what we're doing, why we're doing it, what metric we're trying to fix, what is the metric of success, who is responsible for what, such that there's no ambiguity. And um, it's just easier to do that with a page of text. And so the the standard story with Amazon um, when business was there was everyone sits down at the table, everyone reads the memo, and they make their notes, decide what questions to ask, and the meeting doesn't start until everyone's done, and Bezos is always the last one to finish, which I don't think is because he's a slow reader, naturally. Um, I think that he's uh, some combination of, one, being a careful reader, two, just signaling to people, like, it's not a race. Please don't skip what turns out to be a crucial paragraph, and that if the memos are written very concisely and directly, there isn't going to be anything you want to skip over. Hmm. And then if you go back to Microsoft, like they had lots of smart people. There's actually a New Yorker article from years ago where the journalist, I think it's written probably early 90s, where the journalist has started emailing Bill Gates. Hmm. And he says that Bill Gates would send him these multi-page emails like a day after getting the initial email. And you realize that that is how Bill Gates was running Microsoft, was get questions and think think through them thoroughly, and then answer at length, and be sure to have lots of supporting information, and be sure, like, the nice thing about writing versus talking is you can go back, and you can change the order of things, you can eliminate the extraneous things, or put them in footnotes, that's what I do. Um, you can you can figure out if there is something that needs to be emphasized more, or something that just needs to be cut out. And I think, especially if you are a tech CEO emailing a journalist, um, thinking about what things you don't actually want to say, not because they reflect poorly on you now, but because they will be damaging 10 years from now when your company is bigger and more powerful and more threatening. Mm -hmm. This is actually like how a lot of companies get in trouble, is that they start out super ambitious, and they say the kinds of things that very ambitious people say about world domination and crushing the competition or whatever. And then they stop saying that, 
because you can't say we're going to crush the competition. And in fact, a lot of these companies will train people internally, like don't use the term market share, don't talk about competing and competition, focus on the customer, just don't put it in email, which of course looks bad because now you have a PowerPoint saying, don't say all these things. And you've literally said it. Yeah. yeah. But um, they they still have said those things in older older communications. So that's often what comes back to bite them. I want to give you a chance to give you a quick point on the tacit knowledge point with yes. reading. And then I want to get into how what some of the other ways that companies do internal writing are. So I know you've worked with Stripe, and I want to hear sort of what that landscape looks like for business writing, comparing it to Amazon. Sure. Yeah, so the, the tacit knowledge point is, um, so I'm a big champion of reading over over video for just general information. There are categories of information where video is clearly, obviously superior, and a lot of those are tacit knowledge. So um, in my case, the very common use case is um, building something for the kids that I have purchased in a disassembled state and I need to actually build. Um, my shape rotation skills are not quite up to par for some of this <laughs> stuff. And so it's it's a lot easier to just look at the YouTube video, see what people do, and you know, rewatch whatever the tricky weird part is where like you you hold on this while stretching this and then you push that button and then it just pops into existence. So it's it's good for that. And I think that means that um YouTube is really good for a lot of very practical, either like home maintenance type skills or blue collar skills in general. Where the classic how to blank. Yes, yes. Like you would, you would learn it from someone who does it, either has had to do it, like has had to unclog a drain, or for someone who does it for a living. Um, now you can learn a fair amount of it from YouTube. So I guess what that amounts to is like if you think that the world is going to that the US and the world will continue to get richer and that we'll consume more services, we'll have more of these like products that are produced by a small group of people and then consume globally. You want to be a reader. If you think the future is actually a future where um, a lot of globalization unwinds and a lot of the stuff that we implicitly outsource to the rest of the world, like buying, you know, we buy cheap, fairly disposable appliances and stuff because we could just replace them. But if we were buying stuff that had to last for 20 years, we'd have to learn how to fix it. So if you're more pessimistic, then definitely be a video person. But yeah, if you're more optimistic about economic growth um, and about like the current kind of economic growth continuing, be, be a text person. Let's talk about the different companies and sort of the landscape of, of memo writing. Yeah, sure. So um, I think a lot of it, it's hard to get the flavor without being inside the company. And um, you know, some of the some really interesting companies have not quite gotten big enough that they've gotten sued and had all this stuff spill out or had it had some of it leaked. But what I think you can see is that there are some companies that are building kind of a references culture, and then some that are building a more of a live communications written culture. So someone like GitLab, um, they've they've been full remote since the beginning. And um, they have this really cool wiki where it's basically all of their internal processes. You can read all of them. And that stuff is pretty static. And so it does make sense to have it, have it as a reference. It does mean that the people who are doing those roles can be swapped in and out more efficiently. So if you need to add a customer support team in a new language that you didn't previously support, like a new human spoken language you didn't support. Um, you know roughly what the procedures are, you know what some of the problems that can arise are, you know what the right team structure is, et cetera. Or if your head of X leaves, 
hopefully there is uh, extensive documentation on what the head of X needs to do. And then the people who report to that person also have corresponding documentation on what they should do. So the new person can spend a while getting up to speed, but they know roughly what to do, and there are hopefully no loose ends. So I think that that's one version, and um, that can work well, especially in a company that has to do asynchronous communication and that is remote and that expects some employee turnover. And then the the sort of Microsofty and Amazonian model that seems more about communication around discrete decisions. So it's actually less about we're going to create reference documentation that they will we will then look at, and that will be where the knowledge lives. It's more like we're going to think this through, and the actual the place where the knowledge ultimately lives is in the heads of people who are making decisions. So we're actually loading a bunch of useful data into RAM and then sending people forth to make decisions that partly reference that data or reference those mental models. So I think those are those are different ways, the like long-term storage versus working memory models mm-hmm. of writing. Though the working memory model of writing does feel wasteful because you spend a lot of time getting a draft into shape and then people read it and sort of the better it is, the more people just don't ever have to read it again. Like they got the point. You, and you were right, and so the thing gets done. And then once the thing is actually in the process of getting done, like you have to go back and reference, okay, what are the performance indicators? What are the metrics we care about? And are we actually hitting those, or do we need to rethink those? But you don't have to go through the arguments. Like you're basically living out the argument. It's sort of like a religious, you know, conversion experience. <laughs> so it feels kind of wasteful in the sense that the actual artifact that's left is just this husk that no longer matters once if it works. But it's also the process of doing the writing is probably one of the more, more useful parts. And then you're transmitting a lot of that utility, a lot of the the work that someone did to actually figure out what point they're making and to think about all the possible counterarguments and what the counterargument to that is, or if that counterargument actually needs to be addressed and incorporated into the plan. Um, a lot of that work it takes a lot, of, a lot of time, but it has to get done to make good decisions, and so they did it. Yeah, one of the things I love about having a written culture and why I'm more and more excited about it, especially as the team grows, is if we're in a meeting, conversational meeting, and you know what ends up happening is quite political, that the boss says whatever, and then everybody just literally subconsciously goes around whatever the boss is saying. And so there's a huge hierarchy. If you're in a memo, that doesn't happen nearly as much. And what I love is, at least people can know, if I look at a paragraph, I look at a section, I have no idea who's written it. And so I do think that in that sense, there is a more meritocratic way that ideas bubble up and decisions get made. Yeah, and uh, I think two companies that have tried to enforce that, and um, it's always a question, like if a company has a reputation for a particular kind of corporate culture, is it that they have that corporate culture? Is it that that's actually an understatement, they're even weirder than you realize? Or is it that they're like a little bit... Should companies be way weirder? Um, In general, yes, if they're small, and then they just have to get more normal as they scale. Um, unfortunately, but you know, there's there's nothing wrong with running the company you'd love to work for, and keeping it keeping headcount capped at whatever is a reasonable way to cap it, such that you actually get the culture you like. Because like when when you have a job or have a company, you are determining how you spend a big chunk of your waking hours. And no kidding, <laughs> yeah, like why sacrifice a lot of your lifestyle gains to make more money that you just don't have time to enjoy? Um, but yeah, like, going back to the 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 kind of um, memo culture and um, the question of criticizing like 
jumping through the org chart to make points. Um, Pre-IPO, PayPal had this reputation and Bridgewater had, and to an extent still has this reputation of being very flat and very open to criticism from low-level employees to top-level employees. And so I think both companies have a story of an entry-level-ish employee getting a company-wide memo from the CEO and replying to the effect of, this is stupid, here's why. And in both cases, the moral of the story is this was actually rewarded and encouraged. And um, I think I think there's, in one of those cases, it was like the person accidentally hit reply all instead of just reply and thought they were going to get fired, but actually were praised. And like one of the one of the things to navigate there is there is actually a pretty good chance that the CEO has a better idea of how to run the company than a new employee. So there's actually probably not a great hit rate on the, those kinds of criticisms. On the other hand, you really don't want to be in a position where the CEO is insulated from all of the useful information on what they're doing wrong because everyone's too intimidated to speak up. And different companies and organizations and even societies have different ways of trying to transmit information from the people on the ground who actually know what's going on to people who have broader but shallower knowledge and are have the legitimacy to make important decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always think of writing as a technology that climbs organizational ladders probably better than than other mediums because it's so well compressed. And also, the people at the top, they need highly compressed information because they're so void of time. And so writing is a good way to do that. Um, Tell me about this idea of how many different newsletter writers have actually gone on to be fairly economically successful. We can talk about Shelby Davis, Jim Cramer, Bill Gurley, Warren Buffett, who else comes to mind? Yeah, so I think um, you know part of part of the way this works is you stretch the definition of newsletter writer a lot. But <laughs> yeah. I think um, Bridgewater is actually a, a good example where Ray Dalio did start out by sending his thoughts, and he would send out his thoughts on interest rates or commodities or what the market is doing, and um, subscribers paid for that. And then eventually, people just told him, "Please, instead of sending us this memo that our the head of our pension fund immediately reads and just trades based on, why don't you just manage some money for us instead?" And so. Um, in that case, Bridgewater went from selling just access to ideas to charging a fee on assets under management. Um, Bill Gurley has um, had an interesting career background where he started as an equity researcher and then had a separate newsletter, which I think was originally distributed by Fax. But um, it was just his thoughts on the industry, a little bit more informal than your standard like 40-page research paper with lots of charts and graphs, but also just a lot more direct and that helped him out. There was also Seven Rosen was an early VC fund, like 80s VC fund. They were also newsletter turned venture fund. Uh, Charles Schwab wrote a newsletter briefly before starting Charles Schwab. Uh, so yeah, people have done that transition. And I think part of it is that newsletters have very, they have broad reach, they have high surface area relative to other businesses. Like you can, you can have, get some attention and build some branding in front of a lot of people without having a huge business behind it. So you can almost look at a newsletter as a brand name and a customer list in search of another business. And in a lot of cases, if it's a newsletter, like it's the subscribers are this potential network of people. And if you think about a network of people who are interested in, say, finance, as a lot of these newsletters are about finance, um, some of them have money and are looking for places to invest it. Some of them need money in order to invest it productively in their own business. So connecting those two is like the really natural thing to do. So I think that over time, there will be um, an increasing number of 
newsletters that started out on Substack and they end up running a fund that obviously has happened and will continue to happen. And then um, I think some of them will end up doing slightly more, more esoteric stuff, but also basically connecting different sides of the network that they've built. I think another part of it is that if you are running some kind of investment business, you are allocating capital and going back to the memo writing culture, like you have to think clearly about what it is, what your decision is, why it works. And, um, you know, starting like writing investment memos without being able to write checks can get you to a position where you can write the memo and then write the check too. If we walked into a university, you got 40 kids right now. I give you an hour to teach a class. What do you teach it on? It's a writing class. It's a writing class. Um, teaching a class on how to identify a topic that is at the intersection of some Venn diagram of things that you would actually be reasonable for you to care about and reasonable for you to write about, how to dive really deep in research, and then how to edit it into practical shape. That's probably a lot for a one-hour class. It might be more of a semester thing. So how do you structure it? How do you think about this? Uh, so I think one thing to do is to start listing out separate unusual interests that you have and then start listing out parallels between them or places where they actually intersect in the real world. So um, if you are interested in software and you're interested in business, then obviously software companies are a pretty direct place to, to look at. Um, maybe you're interested in, I don't know, you're interested in probability and you're interested in poetry. Um, maybe there's something interesting to say about just, I don't know, what what are the things that determine whether an undiscovered poet will become a mm. well-known and well-respected poet? I, I, I mean, I'm, I don't know very much about poetry and know a little bit about probability. So um, I'm not the right person to figure out those intersections. But I think someone who has this set of seemingly disparate interests, often those interests are a reflection of a smaller set of their core traits. And if they figure out why it is that they find these multiple things appealing and what connects those things, then they can start to find, they can start to either one, work on the canonical, here's why this is just like that piece. So this is like Paul Graham's, here's why um, people who write software are just like painters. Um, and, and he says in that piece that it's, it's not like that's the perfect analogy. He says if he, that probably software, people who write software are a lot more similar to architects than they are to painters, but He's done painting and hasn't done architecture, so he's going to write what he knows. Um, so I think, yeah, finding finding those those deeper connections and then finding just the more obvious connections of where in the real world does this topic bump into this other topic or what is the mediating layer between those two topics can be a just interesting way to um, interesting way to explore ideas and sort of explore like why you find these ideas compelling too, and if you're like it's very hard to be the best writer on one topic. But if you take all the sets of topics where that's too competitive and then just start randomly saying best on X and Y, then you will eventually run into something where there is no competition. 90% of the time it's because there are no good analogies and it's stupid because you're just choosing at random. But at some point you may actually find something where you think there are commonalities, nobody's explored them yet, and you can probably say something new and insightful. Yeah, one of the things that I notice when I talk to Rite of Passage students is how few of them know how to look at their own experiences and, first of all, even recognize the wisdom in them in the first place. And second of all, basically make a value judgment of what things are going to be interesting to other people and what things are going to be less interesting to other people. 
and this is something I struggled a lot with when I started to write. Like I just couldn't write about myself. It was like this weird thing, and I sort of had to work through that. But I think that what helps me a lot is if I'm out with a friend or at the bar or hanging out, going on a walk, they'll say, oh, that's really interesting. And they'll help me validate whatever that experience is. And then often I can take some kind of experience and I can use that as the basis for my piece. And I can say, what's the punchline? What's the takeaway? What can I connect that to? And over time, that's become a better and better way to find writing ideas. And basically, anybody over 40 who's halfway successful is going to have a bunch of personal experience that they can draw from, but they just aren't seeing it. Yeah. I think one of the other takeaways is like find friends like that friend who can tell right. you, wow, this is actually really interesting. That is a, a trait that it's useful to cultivate among friends. Because um, you don't, like everyone, I think, kind of overestimates, we sort of overestimate how similar we are to people in some ways and how different we are in other ways. And um, part of that similarity overestimation is just, you know, you've, you've actually lived your life. Like it's a thing that's happened to you. If it looks improbable, it could look really improbable to someone else, but of course it happened with probability one. So um, to you, a lot of stuff that actually would look like surprising or like, wow, you had a lucky break um, and it's amazing you were able to take advantage of it that way, or you must have worked really hard on X, like to you, it's just stuff you did. And um, it can be it can be a little bit too easy to to miss what um, how someone else's life would have gone. And I think like turning to the the wisdom point, I guess one of the ways to think about wisdom, one of the intuition pumps there is just asking someone of the big decisions they made in their life, which of them would they make exactly the same way today? Which of them would they make differently? How much of that is new information you got? And how much of that is just like knowing what you knew then, you would actually do something totally different? Because hmm. I think for a lot of people, either the answer is, you know, I would have gone to a different school, moved to a different city, married someone or not married them or whatever, um, whatever it may be. Like, some of them will have answers like that. And then for other people, um, if the answer is like, no, I actually, I like my life. I wouldn't touch anything because it's actually great. Like that is its own kind of wisdom because at the time that you're making those decisions, you don't actually feel like I'm making the decision that's going to make me a life so good that I would not, I would do anything to um, prevent a change to this status quo. So in a sense, that's, that's its own kind of wisdom. Um, you know, not, not sort of world transforming wisdom, a very mellow sort, but it's there. Yeah. I like this line. Probably 10% of my topic and conclusion sentences are things I type up wearing only a towel because I wrote them in the shower. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a common thing that you can, you can work an idea, like actively work on it, and you can work on a piece of writing or a piece of software or an investment thesis or whatever. But um, if you're working hard enough on it such that you like a lot of the ideas are floating around in your head, you haven't had time, your brain hasn't had time to, to defragment and you know put them back in storage. So they're still there, but um, if you sort of leave them alone for a while and go do something else, you can't help but have more stuff occur to you. So um, I do I do have that sensation a lot. Um, yeah, taking a break, like in the shower or working out or walking or like getting the kids ready in the morning, where I'll realize that I'm still still sort of working on something in the background, and then um, when when I get back to writing, I know what those like what I'm starting with, what I'm concluding with, or at least know something something new and important to add. Um, and I think there's 
you know, a lot of people try to engineer that into their life, but you sort of, you need to get the right level of distraction. So I don't think it really works to go from, I'm writing for a while to, I'm going to take a break to answer emails and then I'm going to go back to writing. The the email thing is just too close. And I think it's just taking one set of text-based information out of your head and replacing it with another set of text-based information. So you just don't have the like space for these idea collisions. Mm-hmm. But I do think that you know, if you don't know, if you don't know how to start a piece or don't know how to end a piece, um, probably taking a walk is better than trying to write ten increasingly frustrated topic sentences yeah. and rejecting all of them. This one of the things that is really surprising to me about writing is how when you're in a piece, and but I'm what I mean in a piece, like there's something that happens where you're just inside the piece. The 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 piece is it's like a surround sound effect that you are existing inside of. And I um, was speaking to a friend's mom, this was four or five years ago, and she was really depressed. And to work through that depression, she started writing a poem every single day. And she looked at me straight in the eye and she said, yeah, I wake up every single morning and I have the whole poem written at this point. And it's like this background process that happens in her head. She doesn't even think about it. And that's just like you in the shower. It's like somehow these things click into place and there's... I remember Ben Thompson saying something to the effect of, I have literal sentences that are actually written, and I just sit down at my computer, I write them, they're there, and then other things sort of morph around that. Yeah, I've, I've definitely had that, that sensation. I think on the idea of like being totally embedded in a topic, the, for me, the two indicators of that are, um, one, dreams about it. That is a very good sign that you're spending probably about the limit of your attention that day on that one thing. And the other one is um, if I'm reading about a company or an industry and I start mentally designing an elaborate German board game about it, <laughs> then I know like I'm getting I'm getting to the point that I sort of know what the moving pieces are, and um, you can sort of abstract it out and think about what what strategy looks like in that environment. Why do you think you're so good at that? Like I I could write for a thousand years and I would never have that happen to me. Um, I don't, I mean, I don't know how, how good I am at that per se versus just spending a lot of time on it. Like, I think that's like, that's the cheat code at this point is, um, I've been doing this full time for three years and it's what I do with my time. And so like over time, it's gotten a little bit easier to do things like figure out if this company is worth writing at length about, or if it's probably not worth the spending many hours of what research. What does worth mean? Like, how do you quantify that? Is like, will I write a newsletter issue that I'm proud of? Um, and if you can go from you have a 50-50 shot of writing something you're proud of to a 90% shot of writing something you're proud of, then your output goes way up relative to the amount of research you do. And um, since you're, since in my experience, idea count is partly a function of output, that means the next round of ideas is a lot easier to get. So um, a lot of this stuff just compounds over time. And um, I think the more, if you write about some really, really object level stuff, like um, here's a profile of this one company, like the bowling company you mentioned, or like gas stations, then you'll often start to see some more generalized mental models that you can then write about on their own. And then you write about the model, and then you look at like the next time you see an object level company that seems like it should be an instance of the model and it's not, then you have an interesting company to write about. You write about why does this company not follow this rule? So like if I if I read about a gas station that just didn't sell candy and didn't sell cigarettes and didn't sell anything, um, that, that would be a really interesting company to figure out because I have no idea how that business would work. On the other hand, you could look at um, like some companies 
have started doing gas specifically to get the foot traffic. And then um, companies that are doing EV chargers, like the EV charging is really, really good for any any kind of business where it takes like 30 minutes to consume the product. So like Starbucks is going to be a big part of the EV rollout because you can charge your car, drink coffee, and then when you're done drinking coffee and maybe lingering over um, either a snack you bought at a markup or, uh, I don't know, even a physical newspaper if you're that kind of person that you mm-hmm. bought at a markup, like you can, you know, they generate revenue from, from that traffic. So they'll do it. But like looking at the specific companies, figuring out what the broad lessons are, and then looking at whether or not those lessons fit somewhere else is just another thing with compounding returns. Mm-hmm. Titles, choose them before, choose them after. Do they matter? Um, titles often matter. I feel like that is an area that I could spend more time on, but I don't know how to do better titles. Um, I think some of the titles I sort of luck into something good sometimes. Like back that, you know, back that SAS up, right? That, that. Well, that was a friend of mine. Um, I love that story. I think that's so funny. He, he managed to work into a research report on Microsoft's move to the cloud. This was like five years ago. Um, he, he wrote back that hyphen AAS <laughs> up and, um, yeah, I was proud of him. He was proud of himself. Lots of, lots of high fives were exchanged. Um, yeah, you don't always get that lucky. And part of the fun of that is obviously getting it past the editors. Um, and I don't really have editors. So, or like I have, I, I, I work with someone, he does edit the newsletter in the morning, but like, I, I don't have editors who are limiting what I can do. I have people who will suggest improvements and do improve the essays. Um, yeah, in terms of coming up with titles, I don't, I don't know. It's like sometimes, sometimes a title will just work. Um, sometimes just a very straightforward title. If I'm writing about a company and I don't know what else to say, I'll just, the title will just be understanding XYZ, understanding Jane Street, understanding Palantir, whatever. Um, sometimes there will be some theme in the article that I can pull out. Sometimes I will write the title in advance, think that I know what the theme is, and then look at the title, look at what I wrote, and realize the title has nothing to do with the content. It's just a total, like, it's something that made it into a footnote and the footnote got deleted, but doesn't actually fit yeah. with anything. It feels like in a more Twitter-centric world, you actually want to optimize for either sentences people will copy and then quote into their tweet or paragraphs they will screenshot and then link to. So um, maybe the maybe the headlines actually matter less than they used to. They still matter for search, but they don't matter that much. Um, they don't matter as much as they used to for newsletters, in my view. Where's your writing the weakest? It is very hard to figure out how much to do. And it's very, very hard to deal with the, the issue of, I've written a bit about this topic. I realize there's a whole lot more to write, but I actually want to publish something today. Um, so one of the tricks on that is um, you just change the, the title to part one. You just add part one to the end of the title and then publish the rest the next day. But um, it can be very hard to to figure out, am I giving this way more attention than it deserves or not nearly enough attention? Um, and it, it still gets to the point where it's satisfactory, but I feel like there's there's room to improve there. I think another thing is just, um, I think there, there are limits to how much author voice is really appealing to people, especially if the author is not, you know, an amazing writer. So um, you sort of want you want the really good people to be maximally self-indulgent and let the you know let them do their thing. But if someone is not just this amazing craftsperson of prose, then making them be more straightforward. So making me be more straightforward in my writing is probably a good thing. When I read your writing, what you trade is 
probably a lack of super distilled compression for here is a bunch of different insights from paragraph to paragraph. Each individual paragraph is going to give you a different way of thinking about things. Whereas other writers will have, here's one phrase, and then I'm going to sort of unpack that the entire time. You're not like a, you're not like a memer as much as like a, Hey, here's like a, like a machine gun, a pop rocks of different ideas. Part of what I benefit from in this case is that there's just so much writing about tech and finance that I can skip a lot of the preliminaries that would otherwise be necessary. So, you know, I just, I don't have to explain to people what AWS is. I can just go right into writing about cloud computing and people will know the context. Um, whereas if I were writing about some other industry, but also for a general audience, and I've had this happen, I do have to walk through how does this actually work? So I wrote about, um, liquid natural gas a while back and should revisit it at some point. And it's a, it's a complicated, amazing industry with a surprisingly long history of people trying to compress natural gas and then ship it long distances. Um, but it's also something where I had to balance between one, how much technical explanation do people have to know? Um, two, if I do explain it in great technical depth, am I more likely to be informing people or more likely to get an angry email from someone who's been in the LNG business for 30 years and reads my newsletter and says, you have no idea how this stuff works? Um, so, so those, those trade-offs get a lot starker in industries that get less media coverage and finance and tech just get a lot of media coverage uh, in like, broadly accessible media. There are, there's plenty of media coverage of niche industries, um, in trade publications for those industries, but people just don't have the same kind of context. And that's a, that gets it to another thing that is always this question about audiences of how much stuff is actually obvious to people, how much stuff is new and insightful. And it's really hard to tell because something can be a, almost to the point of a cliche within an industry and then have like no one outside the industry has any awareness of that. And you don't want to be like, Hey, I invented this great insightful thing when it's actually a cliche that everyone in the industry says, but you also, I think I, my bias would be, um, assume that there are some people for whom it's new information and that even people for whom it's old information, if you can elaborate on it more and get them more, just more of a sense of what's going on, then it's valuable. Yeah. One of the things that, and I'm going to turn this question back on you, is one of the things I think a lot about is my social group, where a lot of times I'll find, like, if I consume a lot of information, it's like a river that is totally still, and it becomes murky. I can't really see my own mind, whereas what I need is much more of a river stream with a constant flow, and then now I can see the bottom of the river, and what I need to do is just talk about ideas. I think of conversations as an algorithm for randomness. Like I always look back, at look back at conversations and say, oh, wow, I've never had that thought before. And I get the randomness plus the feedback, which allows me to come up with ideas. And then there's something about the back and forth of conversation where you could build on something. And so I'm super conscious about my social group. And how do you think about that? How do you think about the people you surround yourself with? Like, do you try to like intentionally create interesting conversations? Surely you optimize for interestingness at some level. So what do you do? Yeah. So, um, writing a newsletter does give you a, another cheat code, which is people who know the topic will get the newsletter forward to them or they're already readers. They will respond. They'll give you useful feedback. And it's generally, they will have a lot more context than you about why decision was made or why something works or why it doesn't work. Um, they will also just have more, more broad context about the question you're trying to answer. So I find that really valuable. I think that, um, 
I mean, talking to people and trying to trying to test out ideas, trying to get what is the case against this is really effective. Mm. So um, finding people who are less likely to tell you that all your ideas are great is good. Um, and other than that, I think like going for breadth is a really good idea here because you really don't know what other people know that you don't know because you don't know it. So um, I I do try to and this I try to like stretch the content of the newsletter a little bit and talk about things I'm less certain about specifically so that I can hear from people who will help me refine those ideas and and get better at them. Other than that, like I'm I'm just personally not that extroverted, so um, I don't. I'm just not in the business of really crafting and refining my social network. I sort of, people ping me more than I ping them. Mm-hmm. So I've sort of, I guess I've done it indirectly by by writing, but that's that's part of why I write is that it is good to talk to people. It's good to talk to people you wouldn't otherwise encounter. And one way to do that is for for them to find the writing. Yeah. Let's close on a conversation about work ethic. You at one point said to yourself, I'm going to make sure that if I am in a domain, no one's going to beat me for, uh, because they worked so much harder than, than I did. And I really admire that. I think that you've written before that it's only at the extreme tales that talent becomes the differentiator. And basically everywhere towards where, you know, point zero zero on the graph, actually it's effort that really pays off. And so let's talk about effort. We'll talk about the Protestant ethic and we'll see where we end up. Yeah, so um that is that is true. And I think like one of the takeaways from from the whole like I don't want to be outworked by someone who I think is just not like I think I could do a better job if I worked as hard. I um there's a limited amount of time. So you the first takeaway from that is there are not going to be like 10 things you're really great at. Um you should probably pick one. Um I think another another caveat on that is is family. Like I I don't want to be really, really successful because I completely ignored my wife and kids yeah. and they don't know who I am or something. Um, they like that you can take that too far. But I think within those domains, like yes, working, picking something where you think that you can plausibly work hard and be among the best at it, or like if someone is better than you, it's because they were going to be better than you pretty much no matter what. I think is a, a good thing to do. I think you can you can treat that uh, on a macro scale, but um on a micro scale, it's actually in some ways more useful because you can say that for a given topic, um, you can choose a narrow enough topic that you will be the person who has worked the hardest on explaining this one thing. Like, um, if you, if you're sufficiently narrow, you can just do that. Like Caro and Lyndon B. Johnson. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, he chose a, you know, a g- guy with a big personality. I actually finished Master of the Senate last night, literally. Oh, nice. Um, That's yeah. a funny coincidence. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he he definitely went went. What do you all take out. from Caro's writing? That's a good tangent. Um, there's this funny thing where Caro keeps quoting LBJ's line from when he was coaching a debate team, or he would LBJ would always tell them, "If you do everything, you will win." And LBJ would do that. He would do everything, go all out. People would say things like, "I didn't think it was possible for someone to work that hard," and just pulls at every stop and gets it done. Whether it's winning an election or stealing an election or getting a civil rights bill passed or getting a guy who is unfriendly to the natural gas industry not nominated for a position that allows him to regulate natural gas, like he he went all out and really made things happen. And um, Carol obviously does that too. Like he 
moved to different places just to be close to people who were close to LBJ. I think and, he lived in the Hill Country in Texas yeah. for two years. Yeah. So like he he got to know these people. Um, when he talks, when he goes into the first person or first person-ish and like talks about the, I guess he doesn't go first person. When he talks about his interviews with people in line in the text, which is an interesting stylistic decision, um, he will sometimes make it clear that this person was talking to him because they were um, developing dementia and that had they known better and been a little bit sharper, he would not have been able to get certain information out of them. In, in other cases, he makes it clear that this person waited until LBJ was definitely dead and only then was willing to talk to him about what Johnson was like. But um, yeah, I think I think that that series is a testament to extreme work ethic. I do try to try to work fairly hard. I try to to read pretty thoroughly about the topics that I'm writing about. But I think it's very hard to talk about work ethic and actually compare your efforts to anybody else for two reasons. I think one is um, to the Protestant ethic point. Like you're either in this cultural, you either this cultural norm of you always brag about how hard you worked. Mm -hmm. Or you have this more Renaissance courtier norm of you you don't brag, but you indicate very strongly that you did not have to work hard at all to achieve this amazing thing. And you don't know if the person you're talking to, you don't know which of those camps they're in. And you can imagine two people who put exactly the same amount of effort into something, and one of them just like always sounds exhausted and is talking about how much how agonizing it is. And the other one says it was easy, and they're doing the same thing. So that's one piece. I think the other piece is just subjectively. I don't know whether working hard or putting effort into something feels like this mental struggle or if it feels like this is a very easy next thing to do. Hmm. Because you'd have to assume that like people, I don't know, people who are ultra marathon runners, um, they they're obviously trying hard, but they they are probably wired such that they don't have to exert as much mental energy to keep going after the 20th mile compared to the average person. So there's this question of how much harder are they trying versus how much harder do they have to try? And you will never know. No one will ever know. And um, you will never know if your your internal struggles of whatever kind are more severe than somebody else's or less severe than somebody else's. Um, you just know that everybody has some kind of struggle. So um, that's sort of how I frame the the effort discussion. And I think that, especially for someone who's like a knowledge worker, you know, a lot of the work is either reading things people have typed or typing things into a computer. Um, <laughs> so that's like, yeah, it's just, you know, there's this long Ouroboros of key, keyboards and screens, and it keeps feeding back on itself. Um, the big thing with, with maximizing output is just um, avoiding distractions. And uh, one of the ways I think about it is like Twitter is not going to be any less addictive a year from now and social media won't be any less addictive and the games won't be any less fun. Um, that stuff is always getting better. It's somebody's job to make that distracting such that you don't spend an incremental 15 minutes on work when you could spend it on something else. So um, finding ways to resist that and ways what to do you plan do? out your day. Um, part of what I try to do is just block up my day into times when I have calls and you have to be fairly focused for those or times when I'm definitely doing deep research. But when I look at the rest of my schedule, I realize I can't mess around because I will literally run out of time. Like it will be 4 p.m. and there's nothing else I will get done that day until 8 that isn't already spoken for on the calendar. It's either I'm, I have other calls and meetings or I have 
emails that have to get sent by the end of the day or um, kids are home and I want to spend time with them. Like there is no other time until the end of the day. And if you get up early, um, the end of the day is not like this endless expanse the way you know it was when I was 20 where it's like, wow, it's 8 p.m. I have another six hours to do whatever I mm -hmm. want. It's like, no, it's eight. I'm very tired and I'm going to read a book and go to sleep. Um, yeah, so managing it, like at this point, that's my strategy, but I've noticed that the distractions keep evolving. They keep getting better. And so the strategies have to continue evolving too. But um, having being in a field where I get daily metrics on how many people read it, I get direct feedback from people saying, this is brilliant or this is stupid. Um, often the, the volume of that feedback is more predictable than the direction. So if I get like five comments from people praising something, I will probably get five comments from people hating on it. Um, and if I get no comments, no comments, it's very rarely one-sided. Um, I'm, I really don't know why that is, but it's true. Um, so like I get a lot of feedback and that's, that's actually very motivating. Just knowing that the next piece is either going to go out to slightly more paying subscribers or slightly fewer. And um, it's going to be read by either slightly more people or slightly fewer. And it's also building this big corpus of things I've written that I can feel good about, that I will continue to reference and continue to think about. And I know that over time, it's very hard to predict what what kind of writing will influence who and in what way. But um, if you write enough and you have a big enough audience, at some point you will hear from people who will say, you know, I really liked that thing you said about X. and what my mental response is, I do not remember saying that. It was probably somebody else. And then I'll Google it and realize I did say it. I just forgot about it. Um, that that does happen, and that's extremely gratifying. Like writing something that even very incrementally changed someone's life, but that you don't actually remember writing is a really surreal feeling, but a good one. Vern, thank you very much. It's a pleasure.